Amen, church. Hey, we just give the Lord a hand. Hey, we, uh, we're going to take a look real quickly at 10 words. And these 10 words, there's a message for you within the message. But these 10 words are pivotal to all of our lives in some way. And when you look at these words, there's going to be a word or two that may resonate with you in a different way than in others. Uh, but these 10 words not only are pertinent to our lives, but they're also pertinent to where we are going together as a church. And the very first word I want you to see is the word predicament. Predicament. If you have your notes, you want to write that down, you certainly can. It'll also be in the Stone Point News tomorrow. And if you don't get the Stone Point News, you can simply go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash news, and you can have it in 10 seconds uh, coming to your email box. But the first word's predicament. The second word is pain. Pain. The third word is petition. The fourth word is praise. The fifth word is partnership. The sixth word is purpose. Then you have proposition. The eighth word is protection. The ninth word is plan. And the final word is power. Now, I share these because 12 years ago, almost to the date, we were planning Stone Point Church. It was a handful of families that first got together, and we thought it would be a good idea to potentially begin the thought process of what it would look like to have a church in Van Zant County that was meeting the needs of people. And the way it began is because we ultimately believed that our communities were in a predicament. The predicament was is there were a lot of people who we claimed to know God, but there were many that were far from him. Uh, the reality is, is we knew that there were a lot of places that still needed hope. That there were a lot of churches in the area, but in spite of a lot of church in the area, there was a lot of pain. A lot of pain because there was a lot of disunity in churches. There were churches that weren't functioning the way that God really called them to. And because over time, the predicament got worse and the pain was more felt. And so a handful of families, we got together and we began to petition God. And we just said, Lord, if, if it be your desire for us to do something, Lord, help us to see it. Help us to be faithful in it. Lord, help us to begin to figure out where we should go and what it is we should do. And this whole idea of a church was birthed and reminds me of a guy named Nehemiah. But here's the deal. I don't want you to think about 12 years ago. Let's go back 445 years before Jesus was ever on scene. Just so you kind of have an idea, 445 years before the Messiah came, the people of Israel had been exiled. Um, God had told the people of Israel, hey, if you don't do what I want you to do, you don't follow my, obey, uh, my commands and you're not obedient to me, then he goes, I'm going to deport you from the homeland. And God sure enough did that. Through the hands of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they exported the people. Matter of fact, you've ever heard of Daniel? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you've heard those stories. Those were the first group of people that were exiled out of their homeland. And ultimately, they landed in several different places. But Babylon, eventually Babylon became Persia. And 445 years before Jesus, the Christ child, the hope of the world ever came onto the scene, you have a guy named Nehemiah who was working as a cupbearer for a king named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes uh, was a Persian. They had conquered the known world at the time. And this guy had had been in office and ultimately on the throne for 20 years when Nehemiah hears of a predicament. And the predicament is outlined in Nehemiah, this book that partners along with the book of Ezra. This book just tells us all that was happening in that day and time. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me because over the course of the next handful of weeks together, we're going to be tracking through a good portion of Nehemiah. So maybe you're not reading the Bible all that often, but you just need a little bit of a plan. You're like, hey, I just need somewhere to read. Read Nehemiah. That'll really help center us together on where you're going to be reading. But in Nehemiah, and you're like, I don't even know where Nehemiah is. There's this thing at the very front of your Bible. It's called an index. Feel free to use it. There is no shame in using the index to find the book of Nehemiah. Once you find the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 1, you see this predicament. And this uh, predicament is one that Nehemiah ultimately senses and feels. Now, here's what you need to understand. When Nehemiah first hears of the predicament, Nehemiah is not close to the situation. He's living in one of the capital cities, and it's the capital city of Susa. He's 800 or 900 miles away from Israel. Like, he's across Texas. He's not very close to what's going on. But he hears of it, and he hears of what's happening in the city. And the city's walls are, have been breached and torn down, and ultimately things are broken. And he begins to, to think, like, hey, what do I do? But he responds with the predicament in this way in verse 3. It says, And they said to me, The remnant there is the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. He hears of what's going on. He gets word. And what what is it? He says the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Now in this time period, 445 years before Jesus, he's working for a different king, Persia, the Persian king Artaxerxes. The people of Israel have been gone out of the land. Now if you can just kind of get an idea of this, The people of Israel, we know, grow in number from Egypt all the way to the time of King David, probably to two to three, maybe four million people. Now, when they're booted out of the land, what I want you to realize is that very few of them go back. And there's going to be three waves of people that go back. Uh, There's going to be a a wave led by a guy named Zerubbabel. There's going to be another wave of a people grow back by Ezra. And then there's going to be a third wave eventually that Nehemiah is going to have. But listen, about two to three, maybe four percent of all of Israel goes back to the homeland. Like it's a very minuscule amount of the people who left. And for a variety of reasons, you've got Nehemiah who is 800, 900 miles away working for a Persian king. He hears the problem. The walls are broken down. And then he responds to the pain. He responds to the pain. Matter of fact, look at verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. So Nehemiah, 800 or 900 miles away, he feels the problem and the weight of the, the pain that's happening. Why? Because even though there was a group of people that went back and they 
They started rebuilding the temple and got it rebuilt. Nehemiah knew that, that the city was still ultimately susceptible to attack. And he knew that, that Israel was not all that God wanted it to be and promised it to be. And so if you can imagine, they have a temple and they have sacrifices and they have some worship and they have some different things that are happening there, but the city is ultimately, in a, in a lot of ways, still at great risk. Now here's the reason I tell you that. It's because just as Nehemiah realized there was a predicament, it took him experiencing the pain of that moment to do something about it. Matter of fact, here's what I want you to understand. The predicament in Nehemiah's day was that he knew that what God desired for the people of Israel wasn't happening. And here's what I want you to hear. The reason we are gathering together, the reason that we are here for the next handful of weeks together is not in some ways merely to inspire us, but it's to remind us that we too live in cities that are broken down. Like, I don't know if you've really taken a view of the city lately in the way that you should. And maybe you see abandoned buildings or maybe you see something new in the community. But the reality is I want you to look past buildings. I want you to look to brokenness. I wholeheartedly believe that the church that we need today is the same church we needed 12 years ago when a handful of families were planning. I really believe that our walls still have many breaches within our area. Like there is still brokenness. Isn't there brokenness in you? Man, there's certainly brokenness in me. And here's the deal. I can oftentimes believe that I can't do anything about the brokenness around me because of who I am. But the reality is I look and I just see a community here in Edgewood and in Wills Point. And I see Grand Saline and I see Myrtle Springs and I see parts, uh, I see Canton and I see Emory, and I see to Maybank, to Caddo Mills, to Forney, and all these places that people drive to come to be a part of this, I see people that are still in need. Families that are still broken, marriages that need repair, and at the end of the day, we will not do anything about it as a church until we first, like Nehemiah, realize there's a huge predicament. But more than that, it's not just realizing there's a predicament, it's actually going, I'm going to get proximate enough to do something about it. 800 or 900 miles away from a problem is difficult to solve, isn't it? But he goes, you know what, I'm going I'm to do something. And, they, and as he begins to do something, he first experiences the pain. The pain of knowing that God has more for them. The pain of knowing there are people who are generally on the ground 800 or 900 miles away who are living in a place where they are prone to attack where the walls are in disrepair, where there is breaches in the city, and he, mour- he mourns and he weeps. And I, I think the question that I would ask you is this, when is the last time that you wept? Not because your county road is bad, <laughs> but because of the neighbors that live around you that need hope. When's the last time that you took a different view of your community? And listen, I'll just tell you, 12 years ago when I first initially even began planning, I had a hard heart towards this community and these communities. In a lot of ways, I can remember gathering at a 10-year reunion and listening to everybody talking about cows and tractors. And I was living in the big city of Dallas, and I was like, dude, what, is this, what, this is what they aspire to do, you know? And then I am that now. But the Lord, in a lot of ways, had to move my heart. And listen, here's what I want you to understand. It is very easy for me 
and I would assume for you, the longer I'm here to see less. To see less needs, to feel the pain of what's happening around me, to, to be tempted to, in some ways, disconnect from my own personal comfort, from my own satisfaction. Because getting into the mess is not only painful, but it also could cost me something. Because the reality is, isn't it easier sometimes to live eight or 900 miles away than to have to get really close to a situation? But Nehemiah says, Lord, there's a problem. It's a real genuine predicament. We might call it a pickle around here. And then he feels the pain of that. And listen, here's what I'm asking of you, friends. I'm asking regardless of where you are. Maybe you would say, I'm really connected here. Maybe you say, I'm on the fringes. Maybe you'd say, I'm looking to get connected here. I'm asking you genuinely to do something for me. And that is to look at the predicament around you in our community and then ask yourself, Am I proximate to the pain? Do I feel the hurt and the pain that's around me? And then ask you another question. What do you plan to do about it? Because see, there's a lot of us in here we would call ourselves control freaks. Anybody, you're, raise your hand, you're like, I'm a control freak. Here's what a control freak is. A control freak is somebody who sees a problem and then a predicament or a pickle or a plight and then says, I got a plan. And then you just jump in and solve it. Anybody? So now that you understand the definition, anybody in here, you would say, I'm a control freak. Yes. There's a lot of us. There's some of us men in here, some of you ladies in here. We would consider ourselves type A personalities. And ultimately, we could in some ways barge in and just fix it. Or at least attempt to. Probably make it worse. But look at Nehemiah's response. He doesn't just feel the pain. He realizes that there should be a proper response. In the latter part of verse 4, it says, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He petitioned. Now, I, I chose the word petition simply because it's different than just prayer. Like a lot of us, we, we see the plight, we see the problem, we see the jam, the pickle that somebody's in. We, we understand that. We realize that that ultimately there, there is pain, and then what we do is we go, we can, we can fix it, or, hey, baby, I'll, play, I'll pray for you. Hey, honey, I'll write it down, I'll pray for you. The problem is, is that we rarely pray with the idea of a petition. The petition is, is saying, I'm going to pray for a long while. I'm going to pray until I see God move in a way that is a blessing to him and ultimately his people. It is the idea that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount when he just says, he talks about praying and he just says, hey, it is about seeking and knocking and it's about finding. It's about asking. So he just says, ask it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's the idea of a deliberate petition. It is praying for months because you feel the plight and the pain and the predicament of a person or a city. And here's my, my question. When's the last time that you prayed fervently for people whose marriages are broken? In a specific person, a specific situation, when's the last time that you, you just etched it? When's the last time that you prayed for a son or daughter who has been running from God for a long time, that you just put it down and you just prayed? And you haven't just prayed for a few weeks, but you've prayed for a few years. 
When's the last time that you saw that and you petitioned the God in heaven? See, here's the deal. What you're going to see next is that Nehemiah is about to have an encounter with this guy, Artaxerxes, who he works for. He's a cupbearer to the king. But before he ever goes to have a conversation with him in any way, we know from Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, and Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, that he prayed for four months before he had a conversation. Hold on, what? Prayed for four months before he even talks to a guy. We don't pray about anything. We just go and have the conversation, don't we? Or we never have the conversation because we're like, God can't do anything about it. He's not going to start our hearts and he's not going to move us in any way. So we just don't do anything. But the reality is he knows that there is a predicament. He senses the pain and then he petitions God. And he petitions him from the end of September, beginning of October, all the way to the end of March or the 1st of April, somewhere in there. For four months, he goes, God, will you give me wisdom? And you might ask, well, what does he pray? We're about to show you, but here's what I want you to hear first. Prayer is where planning starts. Prayer is where planning starts. There's a lot of us in here that we have plans. We have plans for what our church should do, what our church should be, what our family's going to do, what our family's going to become, what we're going to do in the next handful of months, what we're going to do in the next handful of months uh, months and years, and, and we're already planning, right? We're planning how things are going to work out on the family farm. We're, pre- we're planning what's going to happen with our kids' graduation, where we're going to go to college. My question is, is, have you deliberately petitioned God for months, for weeks, about moving? If you haven't, I, I urge you, don't move. Don't plan until you've petitioned God. And friends, it's an area that we here at Stone Point have grown. We have grown in doing poorly. And I confess to you that we move too often without petitioning God. And I'm asking that you would join me in petitioning God. Feeling and sensing the pain of the predicament around us. And our cities are in need. They still need a healthy church. Our community still needs a light in the darkness, a city on the hill, the salt of the earth. Our city still needs us. And I'll tell you, friends, our city needs not only for us to have a predicament and the sense of that. It doesn't need us just to feel the pain. It doesn't need us just to petition God. But it needs us to purposely come before the Lord and say we are going to be what our cities need. And that's, friends, why we're here. And so Nehemiah, he shows us how how he petitions. He tells us that, which is really cool. The next handful of verses we're going to cover, you're just going to see his response. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, he says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. He just begins to praise God. You, the most beautiful picture about us being together in one place is the opportunity to just praise God. I was reading through the book of Acts this week, and I stumbled across Acts chapter 19, and uh, there's this goddess named Artemis, and the people become dignant and outright angry. Because there are people who are disrupting this worship, and that's the, that's the apostles, and it's, it's, it's uh, Paul and, and some of his cohorts, they're disrupting that. And they begin to chant for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And for two hours, they, in one voice, is what the scripture said, they take and they lift up this goddess. And I'm like, what would it look like if with one voice we exalted and praised God? That in the predicament, in the pain, in our petitioning, that we just say, great are you, Lord. 
Great are you, God. You are our refuge. You are our strong tower. God, you are the defender of the weak. God, you are our shield. You are our provision. You are our protection. God, you are what our cities need. Great are you, God. And then what if we... Y'all ever been to an African-American church? Anybody? Like some of you hadn't, and this an experience. But hey, what if you just said, hey, we're going to linger a while. We're just going to praise God together for a while. Hey, on December 31st, we're going to have a night of worship to kick off the end of the year and the beginning. It's a great chance for you just to come and linger for a little while. Sing and say, great are you, Lord. That's his response. He prays. And then he says this, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray for you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And we have sinned against you. He goes, we have sinned. If you have your Bible, you can underline it or make a note of it. He says, we. He's not even there. He's 800, 900 miles away, but he identifies with his people. And he goes, we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He goes, we have gotten off kilter. We have moved. And I don't know about you, but has your family moved just a degree or two? I was recently cutting some boards on a deck, and I was wondering why a handful of things weren't lining up. And I went to my saw, and I'm looking it over, and I'm like, I didn't set it on the zero degree mark where it would cut straight it was on the one degree mark and nothing's fitting a subtle shift moved the people of israel over time away from god friends there's a lot of us over the last handful of years that a subtle shift has moved us from what god desires for our family and there are men in this room that it's time for you to see the predicament to sense the pain of where your family is because you know it's not where God wants it. And then petition him. Petition before the Lord to make you a man after God's own heart. And for you ladies in here, that you're single and you're like, I want a man after God's own heart. Petition to God that you would have all you need in a Savior. And that you and I would praise him in the midst of where we are. And more than that, that we would partner together. I love the fact that in these words, Nehemiah kept writing, we. We've sinned against you. We've acted corruptly. He has a partnership. He takes ownership of that. Friends, we're partners together. I don't know if you know that, but we're partners together. We're partners together in forming walls to uphold the breach. And if you're not partnering together, then let's partner together. Why? Ultimately, because it is the purpose that God gives us. Look at verse 10. It says, they are your servants. He's talking about Israel. He says, and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He's doing a throwback. He goes, Lord, back when Moses was in charge, you brought the people out of Egypt and 400 years of slavery. And he goes, and when you did that, you had a reason for it. Purpose. Listen. Our church has been through hills and valleys, highs and lows, seasons in which we partner really well together and seasons where we've not functioned healthily, seasons where we've moved a degree or two, seasons where we haven't prayed fervently, seasons where we have. And in all of these different things, the thing that just drives me home is that we still have to have partnership and ownership together. 
partnering together and saying, hey, let's figure out how to live and dwell in unity. Hey, partnering together and finding how we uphold our end of the wall. Figuring out where the breach is in our city, in our community, in our neighborhood, and saying, I'm going to be a part of the solution. And ultimately, it's just a resolve to say, we are better when we partner together. When we confess sin together, when we own our disobedience together, when we ultimately say, God, we are your people. And I love that Nehemiah, eight or 900 miles away, said, we are the problem. And then he hit his knees, right? Hit his knees, and then with a downcast face, eventually he's going to end up in front of Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes was in the 20th year of his reign. He'd been doing this for a while. He probably had plans, probably knew what he was doing. But here's the deal. Just so you know, a cupbearer or anyone in that matter, couldn't, you shouldn't go to, in front of the king and be downcast because you shouldn't be able to spoil his day. And so that was actually a problem in that culture. The other thing is oftentimes when you go in front of the king, they would say, cover your mouth because your breath shouldn't even get on him. And so here it is, he finds himself, and Artaxerxes basically asked the question to me at Nehemiah chapter 2, hey, what is happening? Like, you have a downcast face. You're sad, Nehemiah. Like, and then he asks him the question, he goes, hey, what do you, like, not only what is wrong, but he goes, what, what is it that you're requesting? I can see that there's something. Husbands, you ever know, like, when your wife is like, there's just something about her, right? And you're like, and, and, and she's frustrated, but also has a request. That, so here it is. He sees this. Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah's face, sees that there's something that's not right. And then he goes, hey, what do you need? And even in that moment, verse 4, Nehemiah says, so I prayed to God in heaven. Before he even answers him, he prays. Like he seeks wisdom even in that moment. Now, when you've been prayerfully considering and planning things, for that many months, and then Artaxerxes finally says, hey, what do you need? Like, it's like I need the right words, right? I don't need to stumble along this. So he, he just says, I, I, he gives the proposal, you know? He asks great things, and when he asks great things in partnership for the great things he's been praying for, God comes through. And what's incredible is, is that you see God's protection. He meets the dilemma right there. And he doesn't just respond, hey, you know what, I'm going to allow you to go back. But when he says, I'm going to allow you to go back, Nehemiah, I'm, going to, I'm also going to accompany you on this four- to five-month journey. I'm going to send a cavalry of men. I'm going to give you all that you need. I'm sending letters ahead of you to all the governors. They'll be expecting your arrival. Ultimately, they may oppose you, but you have the blessing of the king. And by the way, I'm also going to go ahead and give you some resources. They go into the forest, and they cut down trees and pillars, and they send them on the way. And ultimately, Nehemiah, because of the prayerful planning and consideration, is able to meet the predicament head on. And so he picks up his stuff, and he heads that direction. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, it says, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. So after this long monthly travel, he eventually arrives. He takes three, months to, to, three days to rest, and then he, 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 then he mounts up on a horse. And in the thick of night, look what he does next. It says, Then I arose in the night, and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me on the one which I rode, except the one which I rode. I went out by the night to the valley gate, and to the dragon spring, or the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night to the valley, I expected the wall. Then I turned back, I entered the valley gate, and then I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were going to do the work. 
ultimately he gets there, and after three days, he knows that he's been petitioning the Lord for months. He's traveled for months. He gets there, rests for three days, goes out by night, and looks at the breach in the wall. And, and he inspects it, and he goes, okay, now, now I know what I'm going to do. And he puts a plan together, a plan that the Lord could ultimately come behind, and he plans. Now, we don't know exactly why he went by night, but we could assume that it was because we know there's going to be oppression that comes, and he didn't want to give them an advance. It could have also been that there were people who were a little bit skeptical. Over time, we kind of drift a little bit. We get a little bit harder to inspire, and so maybe he was like, they're going to be worried. If I tell them of the plan before I scope it out, and I give them a solid, concrete place of which we're going, he goes, maybe they'll get fearful. So we don't know exactly why, but here's what we do know. He got a plan together, and then he goes to the people, and this is what he says. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, the predicament, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, the pain, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, and we may no longer suffer derision. And then I told them the hand of my God, the petitioning before him, that he had gone ahead of us, that he had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me, the protection, the provision of God through a man. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And you see power displayed, people fortified. And listen, not strength on their own accord, but strength because God had set the path before them. And here's what I would encourage you to know. A, a man certainly can plan his way, Proverbs chapter 16, but it is the Lord who directs and establishes his steps. Friends, we can plan all day. But if the Lord is not going before us, our troubles, all of our challenges, and the ways we address them are in vain. What I'm asking is this. I'm asking you to move with me. I'm asking you, one, to be aware of a predicament, the challenge. And then I'm asking you to help petition the Lord with me in ways that we see him move for his glory and not my own and not your own, and not so that we can say, hey, come, because we got the coolest and greatest church around. Because at the end of the day, if we're not careful, that's what we're calling people to. Hey, come, because, man, they, we, 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 get, we got all these things going on. You should come and be a part of the excitement. And here's the deal. Listen, at the end of the day, we're not called to make things exciting. We're called to be hope to a city in need. We are hope to be faithful examples and a community and ultimately a culture of faithlessness. And I just pray that you would know that God's still looking for those people. Thomas Constable says this. He says, God is still looking for people who care, people like Nehemiah, people who care enough to ask for the facts, to weep over needs, to pray for God's help, and then volunteer to get the job done. Friends, I'm asking you that you would join me in helping get a job done. And there's three asks of you today. The very first one is to remind yourself that we're on mission. Like we're on mission. We live in a place where we are still called to do today what we were called to do 12 years ago. Have we at times strayed course? Yes. Have at times we failed as leaders, as elders, as shepherds to, to lead in a way that's clear? Absolutely. I confess that I oftentimes can get caught up in the wrong things. And ultimately, sometimes I can get caught up in the mundane task of just doing church that I forget to see the predicament and feel the pain. At times we can plan in such a way in which we're not petitioning the Lord the way we need. And I'm just asking, would you commit to remind yourself to be a part of a mission 
that's a battleship and not a cruise ship. Not here to serve us, but ultimately we're here to serve and exist for the good of those who need us. That we are in troubled waters and we continually save people from the damage of sin and pain. Would you be about that? Would you be on mission? If you would say, hey, I'm on the fringes, I'm asking you, will you join our team? Hey, if you've been hurt, and in this room there's likely people who have been hurt by us, I'm asking, will you have a conversation? I'm genuinely asking, will you give me, our elders, our leaders, anyone a chance to just look you in the eyes and seek your forgiveness? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're not pushing people away. We want to call people to more. Now, calling people to more oftentimes is challenging, and it is hard. But I'm asking you, would you have a conversation? Would you glorify God in that mission? Friends, here's the deal. We are a heavenly embassy on earth. You are an embassy. People are looking for answers and hope if you claim to know Jesus. And you are to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, as Paul wrote to Timothy. I pray you will be. I pray in all of this, whatever it is that the Lord calls us to on our mission, that we would petition for his help. That we would become a more prayerful people. Prayerful for our marriages. Prayerful for our children who still need to follow Jesus. Prayerful for our communities, for our school district. Prayerful for all the challenges we see before our eyes. I pray we'd be a prayerful, petitioning type of people. So I'm going to ask two things of that. I'm going to ask, number one, that you would set your alarm with me. And for the next 52 days, I'm going to ask that you would pray with me every evening at 5.20 p.m. 52 days, the reason I say 52 days is it's symbolic of the time that Nehemiah finally said, hey, let's go, the plan is here, and the people put their hands to that plan. It took them 52 days to build the wall around Jerusalem. For 52 days, I'm asking you to help us fortify and build our walls in prayer. And you may go, well, why 5.20 p.m.? Because 5.20 p.m. reminds us of our call. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, and he is making his appeal through us. Ultimately, if we're going to be a part of taking the wall, then we've got to realize he's going to do it through his servants. And if we're ministers of reconciliation, we're the ones who stand in the gap between God and sinful man, then we are to be a fortified people. And 2 Corinthians 5.20 just reminds us every evening as we pray, Lord, help me to be on mission. Help me to be an ambassador for you. Help me to realize that you are making an appeal to this planet as an ambassador through me. I am an embassy. I am a representation of heaven on earth. God, help me to do that well. 5.20 p.m. every day for 52 days. You'll You'll end on January 25th. And the second one is, is there's some of us who we might also take a step like Nehemiah did and not only mourn, but oftentimes when you see deliberate petitioning and prayer, you might fast. Now, fasting is, is something that is a spiritual discipline. So just like worship, like reading God's word, like meditating on scripture, um, like prayer, fasting is an opportunity for us to align our hearts with God. Now, real quickly, fasting doesn't make us more spiritual. Fasting doesn't mean because we suffer um, that God moves on our behalf. We don't somehow go, you know what, I'm going to become a martyr. I'm going to make myself miserable so that God will do something. That's not the goal. What is fasting? Fasting is a deliberate opportunity to seek God in a handful of ways. The first one, it's seeking God just through a personal declaration. When you fast, you are essentially saying, God, I need thee 
every hour. Every hour I need thee. It is a declaration in which you say, Lord, I long for you like a deer pants for the water. God, I need you. I am, I am dependent upon you. Lord, I, I, am, I am nothing without you. Lord, more than I need physical bread today, I need spiritual bread. More than I need water, I need living water. And God, I'm just totally dependent upon you. And fasting does that. It produces a declaration to God in that way. The second thing is, is it discloses some of our idols. For instance, a lot of us, when we think about fasting, you think about food. Well, if you take away food or you take a particular thing around in your diet away, it might challenge you a little bit. Take away sugar, you're likely to have some headaches and be grumpy, right? Some of you are like, I can identify. Some of you, if you don't have your morning routine and you don't have caffeine to kind of drug you up for half the day, then you're drowsy and you're unaware. For some of us, if we don't have food that ultimately brings us comfort and solitude, then it'll change our demeanor. For some of us, it's not food or caffeine or sugar. For some of us, it's your phone. If you were to take it away, you wouldn't know who you were. If you were to take away your social media, you wouldn't know your identity. For some of us in here, it's, it's, it's busyness. For some of us, it's just a lack of solitude. For some of us, it's your work. So fasting is not only a declaration to God that I need you, but it discloses some of our idols. And so for me, like, i got to decide, am I going to fast for food? Am I going to fast from social media? Am I going to fast from coffee? I would say that over the course of 52 days, I'm going to ask you to join me every Monday from fasting for something. And the reason I fast is simply because I declare to God and I disclose my need for Him. And so I might need to start tomorrow with coffee. Lord, I, I need you more than I need my morning get up. It could be food. I don't know what it is exactly the Lord is going to call me to fast from, but I'm asking you for a period of time, 52 days, every Monday in that time period, to fast and align your heart with God. And you might ask yourself, well, why am I doing that? Because ultimately it teaches dependence. If I take this thing away, then what do I become? If I take away food, then what's my dependence? What do I rely on? What do I replace it with? And here's the deal. The goal of fasting is simply to take something away, not to merely beat your body into submission, but to help you become more dependent upon him. And so as you remove something from your life for a period of time, whether that be 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever that is that you're called to, I'm just asking that you would replace it with the thing that you need most, which is our Heavenly Father. And so ultimately, I'm asking you to be on mission. I'm asking you to petition God with me. And then here's the last thing. I'm asking you to remind yourself that we're better together. We're better together. We are better together. If one member suffers, we should all suffer. If one member rejoices, we should all rejoice. And I just pray that we would do that. And so that we would praise God together, that we would plan together, that we would petition together, that we would be united together, that we would solve our city's predicaments together. Ultimately, listen, I want you to hear something. At the early days of the local church, the local government, the city council was not called to plan and ultimately meet all the needs. It was not, it was not cities that came up with hospitals, friends. It was churches. Ever wonder why you're going by Methodist Hospital or Baylor Hospital? It's because ultimately all those works, all those cares, all those clinics, all the ultimate healing that was to take place within society began with the local church. And why have we stopped? Oh, Lord, why have I stopped? Why have I not called people to more? Why have I backed out? Why have I got fearful of complaining? Why have I done that? Because I am short-sighted. 
and I'm not like Nehemiah all the time. But ultimately, God is calling me to that. God is calling me to lead. Not because I have the credentials. I don't have a seminary degree. You might think, oh, really? Nehemiah didn't either. You know what Nehemiah was? He was a cupbearer who became a wall builder, who eventually God gave a platform of governor to change places and cities. That's what we need. And friends, I don't want to do it alone. So I'm asking that you would join me in that work. We're better together. We're better together. And here's the deal. You're here and you go, okay, I'm aware of a need. I realize that our city needs help. My question is, how are we going to address it? Come the next two weeks, and I'm going to show you how we're going to address it. Practical ways in which we produce hope. Practical ways, and I'm asking you, that just as you'll join me in prayer and potentially fasting, I'm asking that you'll make a commitment the next two weekends to be here. A little uncomfortable, crowded potentially, yes. Exciting, uh, absolutely. But more than that, the reason is there's a genuine purpose for our gathering, and I can't wait to share it with you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the story of Nehemiah. We thank you for his incredible leadership skills. We thank you, Lord, for his willingness to go eight or 900 miles away to get part of the actual predicament, that he didn't merely leave his people. He didn't say, hey, you know what? I'll pray for you. Hey, I'll send some things to help. But Lord, he actually went and got on the ground. I pray, Lord, that you would move us to be such a people that we wouldn't merely know there's a problem and just say, you know what? I'm gonna pray about it. But Lord, that ultimately we would get to be a part of the, the solution, that, that, Lord, you would move our hearts and stir our affections to be a part of all that you've called us to be. And I pray, Lord, that here at Stone Point Church, that we would not be known for our name, that we would not be known for our buildings, that we would not be known for our ministries, but we would be known by our purpose and our calling and our people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen people. We have been called from darkness into light, and we are the city on a hill. Lord, would you help us to shine brightly so that others see us, and ultimately, through us, they see you. And all we are is a heavenly embassy and spiritual ambassadors. And I pray that you make your appeal to others through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.